Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Attention nerds. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire The Riley and Kimmy Show. The Riley and Kimmy Show. It's a Friday, a Friday flashback, flashback Friday, flashback Friday, flashback Friday, flashback Friday. Yeah, it's, it's easy for me to say. Right next to me is. Jimmy, I got one thing. Hi there, I am your host, Patrick Riley. I am the villain of the story. And the hero of this story and all the others is Kimmy. Hello, Kimmy. Hello. It is a flashback Friday. Yeah. And you know, we're not gonna go that far back. We're actually gonna go to the previous episode of the Riley and Kimmy show, number one thousand seventy seven. For those who checked it out, they will understand this. And for those who did not, you will want to check this out because it it'll it'll all make sense. And I think it it will bring a smile to your face. Kimmy, we have a public service announcement just for you. Okay. All right, Kimmy. This flashback Friday moment, we're going to identify something for you. This, Kimmy, is Slim Whitman. Yes, Kimmy, that is Slim Whitman, not Slim Pickens. Just remember that. Okay. And not Slim Jim. Okay. And if you want to know what we're talking about there, because Kimmy, Mm -hmm. well, she got a little confused there. You can find what we're talking about on episode 1077. That is available on multiple social media sites. Links to that or our website. And where is our web or what is our web address, Kimmy, where they can find that Slim reference? RileyandKimmy.com. That's right, RileyandKimmy.com. Welcome to a, aren't you glad it's a Flashback Friday so I can do that? Aren't you happy? So glad. And Kimmy, if you do well on this episode of the Riley and Kimmy Show, we have some Slim Jims waiting for you. Great. (laughs) There there we go. Would you like to play Nerd and Pop Culture Geek Trivia on this day? Well, I think so. It is a Friday, a Flashback Friday, December 9th, and we'll be asking Kimmy some questions from the Nerd and Pop Culture Trivia Almanac. Some of these might be mixed up. It might uh, might not be chronological. It might be just all over the place, sort of like something out of uh, maybe Quantum Leap. Here we go, Kimmy, with our very first question. Moving over to cartoons and television, Kimmy. <laughs> It was on this date in history, give me within five years, that a Charlie Brown Christmas is first, first aired on television. It makes its debut, the very first one of the Peanuts characters on TV. Give me the year within five that this happened. And bonus question, tell me the network that aired a Charlie Brown Christmas for the very first time. What is your answer, Kimmy? 1968. It was 1965 that that happened. And give me the name of the network 
CBS. That's correct. It was CBS. And you can check out the uh, the Peanuts book. That's Peanuts about Charles Schultz, the biography about him. And they have a, a good section talking about how that came to be, that, that cartoon. Because if you actually take a look at the cartoons, they are n- unlike cartoons of the time period because the cartoons of the time period, especially television cartoons, because their animation was not full like a Disney cartoon. Theirs were full animated compared to, you know, some of the others that aired on TV at that time period was not full. They would use like Hanna-Barbera, not bashing them. They would utilize audio to fill in the lack of or cover the lack of visual, if you will. Mm. His, the Peanuts cartoons, did not rely on a lot of sound effects. You don't hear boinks and things like that. Crazy cartoon sound effects are not there. Adults do not voice the characters, which the network wanted to be done originally. Hmm. They did not want the children to be doing the voices. They wanted voice talents to do that. There's no narrator or thing like that, that that's in this. And it's just it's very unique. And Charles Schultz had his hands on that. He prevented certain scoring and soundtracks being utilized, music-type elements, cartoonish-type things. Hmm. Did not want that cartoonish feel at all. Mm-hmm. So you can find out more about that on Peanuts. I know some people don't like the Peanuts uh, biography, but it is very good in my opinion. Matter of fact, it made me appreciate Charles Schultz even more uh, from reading that uh, that uh, mm-hmm. that biography. Moving back to the Almanac, Kimmy, it was 1854. Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, was published in England. That's in 1854. Did they ever have you recite poetry in school? No. So you, you didn't have the pleasure or displeasure of reading that one in front of the class? No. It was on this date, Kimmy, within 50 years. Tell me, when Christmas seals went on sale for the very first time at a post office? 1850. So close, you missed it, though, by seven years. It was 1907 that that happened for the very first time. So on this date, 1926, the United States Golf Association legalized the use of steel-shafted golf clubs. Prior to that, wood. Okay. I wonder if those were easier to break. Did you ever break a golf club? No. Nope. Did you ever? Did I know it, somebody who did. Was it somebody related to you? Mm-hmm. Did you witness this happen? No, I just heard about it. But you did not, did they do it at a putt-putt golf course or an actual, you know? Actual. Wow. Did they get ejected from Several the, times. Th- did they get ejected? Throwing clubs. Are you serious? Clubs. Did they get ejected? I don't think so. Wow. No kidding. I can't believe you would have somebody in your bloodline that would do something like that. That's just so crazy, Kimmy. It's on this date, Kimmy, that this happened for the very first time. Now, think about this for a little bit here. We'll give you a little buffer here before you give the answer. The first FM radio advertising contract is signed. That means for commercials. The very first time this happened. Give me within 15 years that that happened for the very first time. Just go sending the dude here to get these big accounts to put spots on our station. Commercials! Yes, Kimmy. Kimmy, when did that happen? The very first radio contract for commercials. When did that happen for FM, not AM, 
FM. Probably much earlier than I would suspect. So I'm going to guess. You got a 15-year gap here or, or leeway. So I'm going to guess 1960. No, Kimmy, it was 1940 when that happened. It was an experimental station in New York. The key is really with uh, FM, it did they they it just lay dormant through World War II. It wasn't until much after that that it really became big. Kind of a trick question, but a fun question there, mm. you know, with uh, FM. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was 1940. It was 1955. Sugar Ray Robinson knocked out Carl Olson and regained the world middleweight boxing title. It was on this date, 1960. Sperry Rand Corporation unveiled a new computer known as Univac 1107. Okay. You heard of Univac. Mm-hmm. If you take a look at what how big Univac was, Univac was just huge. It was like a giant room. That, that was Univac. It was on this date in 1962. Lawrence of Arabia by David Lean had its world premiere in London. It was 1967, Kimmy. The lead singer of The Doors is arrested on stage for disturbing the peace. Give me who that lead singer is, or was, actually. Um, Jim Morrison. That's correct. 1967, that happened. It was on this date, Kimmy, 1978. The song Soul Man, that version was released under the names by the Blues Brothers. Tell me the two who made up the Blues Brothers. John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. Yes, 1978 is when that happened. Do you have that on vinyl in your collection? I don't know. I might. Really? I don't think so. Okay. It was 1978. The first game of Women's Pro Basketball League, the WBL, was played between Chicago Hustle and Milwaukee Does. Do you remember them playing, or are you too young? No, I don't. Well, because you were up in that area. I didn't know if you, you know, any of your sports freak family mm. followed that or not. It was 1991. The second Billboard Music Awards happened. Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston win. That's 1991. It was on this date. Britain's Prince Charles and Princess Diana announced their separation within five years. Give me what was the year? 1988. It was 1992 that that happened. 1993 saw astronauts aboard the Space Shuttle Endeavor complete repairs to the Hubble Space Telescope. It was on this date, Kimmy. Tomorrow Never Dies. The 18th James Bond film premieres in London. Give me the year and tell me who starred as James Bond. Piers Bronson. That's correct. And 1998. Very, very close. We got to we got to give you that one. It was 1997. Okay. Let's move on here. It was in 2002 Britney Spears filed for a restraining order against a 41-year-old Japanese man. She claims that he had been stalking her since September. It was 2002. United Airlines files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy after losing $4 billion in the previous two years. It was the sixth largest bankruptcy filing. 2003 in Australia, thieves broke into a home and stole two 300-year-old etchings. These etchings were done by Rembrandt. The 4x4-inch etchings, a self-portrait, and a depiction of the artist's mother were valued, this is in 2003 at $518,000. Kimmy, it was on this day, give me the year, Brokeback Mountain was released, and tell me who the stars were. 2005? Exactly right. Wow. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal. Okay. And um, um, 
Heath Ledger. That's exactly right. You, you got that. So on this date, Kimmy, 2013, Mike Ditka's number 89 jersey is retired by what football team? Chicago Bears. That's correct. Moving over to birthdays. On this date in history, Emmett Kelly was born 1898. Do you know what he is known for? He was a clown. How on earth do you know that? I don't know. How, I, you are exactly right. He died at the age of 80 of a heart attack in 1979 at his home in Sarasota, Florida. I can't believe you knew who that was. Mm-hmm. thought I was going to throw you there. See if you can identify who this is. person died at the age of 82 in 1985. She was an American film character actress best known for her portrayal of the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz in 1939. Who is she? Margaret Hamilton. Unbelievable! I thought you were, you wouldn't know who that is. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you knew your uh, your Oz. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm quite proud of you there. Thank you for knowing who that is. Moving over to somebody else born on this date in history, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. died at the age of 90 in 2000. He was an American actor. This person born on this date 1911. That's Broderick Crawford. He died at the age of 74 in 1986. He was an American stage, film, radio, and television actor, often cast as a tough guy. And known for his portrayals, so many things. One of them we will highlight is he starred as Willie Stark in All the King's Men. There's no need in my telling you what this state needs. You are the state and you know what you need. You over there, look at your pants. Have they got holes in the knees? Listen to your stomach. Did you ever hear it rumble for hunger? And you... What about your crops? Did they ever rot in the field because the road was so bad you couldn't get them to market? And you? What about your kids? Are they growing up ignorant as dirt, ignorant as you because there's no school for them? Fantastic movie, and if you have uh, just a little bit of curiosity about politics, even though it is dated, that film still holds true today. And check that out. That's All the King's Men with Broderick Crawford. Another movie to uh, check out, by the way, is Human Desire, a 1954 black and white film noir done by Fritz Lang, starring Glenn Ford and Gloria Graham. He is fantastic in that. Acting opposite those two is just, it's beautiful work. And that's worth checking out as well. And if you're up, uh, you know, like I think this TV network, that's what it's called, this, if it's in your market, you can catch him on Highway Patrol. He did the TV thing from 1955 to 1959 he was actually known as maybe one of the bad boys of the back lot he would get into all kinds of trouble behind the scenes at the studio lot he would fight with people Mm. that's broderick crawford born on this date 1911 this person having a birthday today kimmy he has acted 60 plus years he has appeared in more than 90 movies tell me who he is And tell me how old he is today on his birthday. Here is your audio clue. Ladies and gentlemen, you know, it's it's really doing something like this is really very difficult. A lot of people don't realize that uh, for an actor, he feels very secure behind that montage of photos that you were showing. Then you're playing a role. You've got wardrobe. You've got a part to hide behind. But when you come out like this you really feel completely naked because you have to be yourself. Now, on my way to the theater tonight, I was rushing because I love to walk in New York. And uh, I was a little late, so I was walking rather fast. And somebody from across the street yelled to me, hey. And he ran across and he said, gee, my favorite actor. And I said, thank you. I'm in a little hurry. He said, you know, I'm so excited and so nervous. He said, your name went right out of my mind. Well, I said, "Uh, my name's...
What is his name, Kimmy? He has a famous son who acts as well and directs. His famous son was in the TV series Streets of San Francisco. Oh, Kirk Douglas. That's correct. That is Kirk Douglas there. Can you tell me how old Kirk Douglas is today within five years? 95? You get it. He is 100 years old today. Wow. Kirk Douglas celebrating 100 years. Wow. That is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And actually his voice was a little bit, you know, I can identify because I'm a big Kirk Douglas freak. I didn't know if you could or not. But it's interesting if you listen to what he said there. That also holds true with meeting celebrities at conventions because people don't really, what he says is true there because, you know, you get costuming to hide behind. You got a script and you got a limited amount of people on a set. It's a different world entirely. And that's why sometimes you might encounter somebody a little bit shy at a convention. Mm-hmm. Right, Kimmy? Mm-hmm. See if you can identify who this mystery birthday person is. Now, they're no longer with us. They died at the age of 68. He was a comedian and actor, best remembered for being on this TV show. He played the father. You tell me the name of the TV show. Tell me who the birthday person is. And we'll ask one more question. Now, that's actually the ringtone for one of my friends because he's a big-time collector. I use that. <laughs> uh, I use that as a ringtone for one of my friends. Yes, you're all you listening right now going, boy, is he using that for me? I wonder. It's possible. I could be. Now, Kimmy, tell me who the actor is whose birthday is today. Red Fox. That's correct. Tell me the name of that TV show he's known for. Sanford and Son. What was the name of the character he played? Fred Sanford. That's correct. And... Within five years. Tell me what year he passed away. Um, 1990. You got it. 1991. We'll ask another one here. What network aired Sanford and Son originally? NBC. That's correct. And what year was the last episode shown for the first time within two years? 1982. 1977. The show ran from 1972 to 1977. Did it air in your household? Mm-hmm. Your family actually watched Sanford and Son. Mm-hmm. That's amazing because I, I would have figured they'd been kind of stuck over on CBS. Although what was it ran for a very short period of time, one season, uh, they tried to run the Planet of the Apes against <laughs> against Sanford and Son. It didn't work. Mm. Uh, it, it just did not work. Moving over to somebody else having a birthday. See if you can identify who this is. He died at the age of 86 in 2015, Kimmy. He was an American actor, businessman, and animal welfare advocate, best known for his role as the the dad in the ABC TV comedy drama Eight is Enough. Can you tell me who he is? Dick Van Patten. That's correct. Died at the age of 86. He did really help out dogs and animals. One of the things Van Patten did was he was the founder of Natural Balance Pet Foods and National Guide Dog Month to give people awareness of guide dogs and mm-hmm. what is needed or how the process to train them 
uh, is done. And so he really, uh, really focused on that towards the latter years of his life. This person having a birthday today, Kimmy, still with us. Tell me how old he is. He's an American actor, writer, film director, and television director as well. He has been nominated for an Academy Award twice in 1968 for Best Adapted Screenplay for The Graduate and in 1979 for Best Director for Heaven Can Wait. He was the co-creator and writer for Get Smart in 1965 to 1970 with Mel Brooks, and he hosted NBC Saturday Night Live 10 times between 1976 and 1980, and it became a tradition in those four years for him to host the final show of each season. Who is he? Buck Henry? Amazing. And how old is Buck Henry today? 90? Close. He is 86 today. He used to scream at the TV. I don't know if you ever watched him on television. He was extremely popular at one time. Matter of fact, he was so popular, he uh, hosted Saturday Night Live in 1988. That's Morton Downey Jr. Do you remember him? Mm. He's the one who actually caused Trash TV. They give him the credit of one who actually started it. Okay. He was born on this date, died at the age of 68 in 2001. Moving over to another notable having a birthday today, an actress who rose to international fame playing M in Goldeneye in 1995, a role that she would continue to play in James Bond films until Spectre in 2015. Who is she and how old is she within five years? Judy Dench. Correct. And how, uh, within five years, how old? 75. She is 82 today. Bo Bridges having a birthday today. How old is actor Bo Bridges within five years? 72. He is 75 today. Way to go. Okay. Moving over to the sports section. Dick Butkus having a birthday today. Former American football linebacker who played his entire professional career for what team, Kimmy? I don't know. The Chicago Bears, 1965 what? to 1973. Mm. He was considered probably the toughest at that time period. Hmm. Dick Butkus having a birthday within five. How old? Well, I should have known that. Um, 65. He is 74 today. Moving over to something else from the Almanac, Kimmy. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. American actor and voice artist who is known for his role as the Klingon Wharf in the Star Trek franchise. Tell me who that is and how old he is today. Um, you have a picture with him. I know. You attended a Q&A he did. Hint. Uh, Clue. I'm looking to see if his picture is up here on the wall. Well, well I know what he looks like. Oh, well, the, what kind of hint can I give you besides giving you his name? I'm having trouble recalling, retrieving his name. Initials. M. Is it Michael? That's correct. Michael something. I can't. Michael Dorn. Dorn. How old is Michael Dorn within five years today? Uh, 58. He is 64 today. Okay. This next person, American country music and country pop singer and songwriter. She enjoyed crossover music success with this single in 1982. It reached to number 15 on the pop charts and number one on the country charts. Tell me who she is.
Jimmy, who is that? She went by one name, sort of like a Cher did and that kind of stuff in the time period. Can you tell me who she is? Mm-mm. It's Sylvia having a birthday today. She is 60 years old. And I know they played that a lot where you you grew up, especially that one AM station your family listened to. I'm sure Uncle Doug played that thing a lot. Mm. I, I have a feeling he did. This person having a birthday today, Donnie Osmond. Within five years, how old is Donnie Osmond today? Um, 65. He is 59 today. Okay. Do you have any Donnie Osmond uh, nope. vinyl? None. Nope. Zero. Nope. Don't like Donny Osmond? Nope. No puppy love? Nope. You know puppy love? He had that as a hit. Mm-mm. It was, you know. Mm-mm. Yeah, it was. <laughs> did you watch Donnie and Marie on TV? Mm-mm. Oh, give me a break. I bet you nope. were singing to Donnie and Marie, weren't nope. you? You wanted to get those bell-bottom pants like they wore. Nope. You didn't like Donnie and Marie? Mm-mm. Something wrong with you. Moving over to somebody else having a birthday today. Nick Seymour, age 58, from Crowded House. This individual having a birthday today, Felicity Huffman, actress. Tell me how old she is within five years. I have no idea who that is. <gasps> you don't know her from Desperate Housewives? Nope. She was on there forever. She is 54 today. Simon Helberg having a birthday today. Kimmy, he's best known for playing Howard Wallowitz on The Big Bang Theory. Tell me how old Simon, or if you will, Howard is today within five years. 35. He is 36 years old today. Moving over to another section of the Almanac. I see dead people. It was on this date in history, 2009. Gene Barry died at the age of 90. Actor best remembered for leading roles in films like The Atomic City in 1952. He played the lead in The War of the Worlds in 1953. And he also played on a TV series called Burke's Law and... Bat Masterson was his other big TV role. Back when the West was very young, there lived a man named Masterson. He wore a cane and derby hat. They called him Bat, Bat Masterson. Kimmy loves that song, don't you? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's Bat Masterson. By the way, if you want to see him in something really interesting, check out Columbo, the very first Columbo episode. It's actually a made-for movie, Kimmy. It was, it, it was a film that they did, a two-hour film. And he plays a psychologist who, well, does you know, does somebody in and okay. matches wits with Columbo. It's very good. One of the things that's really interesting about it is the character Columbo still has not been really uh, taken total form. They don't identify what police force he's with at all. There's certain other things that are a little bit different, but not, you know, totally different. It, it's it's just a very well done episode, though. Okay. And actually, I should say film. You will see it from time to time. Me TV runs it really late or very early in the morning, like three o'clock Eastern time, from time to time. Maybe at least once a month you'll catch it. Okay. And maybe even on Sunday nights because they run. I think Columbo on eight o'clock Eastern time. They run that as part of their you know weekend thing every Sunday. Columbo. Moving over to another part of the Almanac, Kimmy. It is the celebrity and notable wedding section. It was 1989. Baywatch actor David Hasselhoff at the age of 37 weds actress Pamela Bach, who was 26. You know who she was, right? Or is that mm. another one you had no idea? Oh, you forget it. It's 2011. Sinead O'Connor, at the age of 45, marries Irish therapist Barry Herridge, who's 38, 
And she got married at the Little White Chapel in Las Vegas, Kimmy. Okay. Don't know if Elvis. I, mean, they, I don't know if they had a little Elvis singing or anything like that. Well, I think you did a very good job on this episode of the Riley and Kimmy Show. We have that that uh, Slim Jim's waiting for you. Did I redeem myself from the Slim? The, the Slim episode on 1077? Well, yeah. you, Well, I will let people be the judge. So if you missed the, the Slim incident... I guess mm-hmm. we'll refer to it as that. All Check right. out episode 1077. You'll know what we're talking about. I think you did. I think you did a, a, a reasonably good job there, Kimmy. I, I think you did redeem yourself. But, okay. you know, we'll let others be the judge of that. Radio And that's the Riley and Kimmy show because he's 100 years old today. We're going to go back in time on this flashback Friday and we're going to spotlight Kirk Douglas. Now, he did a ton of stage work and also television, a little television and also a lot of film work. But he also did the golden age of radio. He appeared on a lot of things and we're going to focus on three of those things. First one from 1947, April 1947, called Community Property. Then the story of... Markham's death from October 1947, followed by The Butcher's Wife, February 1950. These are all together, uninterrupted, as we well, do our birthday tribute to Kirk Douglas on this Flashback Friday of The Riley and Kimmy Show. You sure manage to look sloppy in the mornings, don't you? Thanks. Coffee? Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't have qualified it. You look sloppy most of the times nowadays. Why should I waste my time looking glamorous for you? Oh, don't mind me. I'm just your husband. I just pay the bills. That's all I do. What bills? I should look like one of the ten best women of the year on what I can squeeze out of you, I suppose. I'm not talking about clothes. But you could get your hair out of your face and put on a little lipstick for a change. Sure. Get up three hours early and go to the beauty parlor. Offer the privilege of making your breakfast and listening to your sour cracks. What's the matter with you? Didn't you sleep well? What do you care? I thought maybe you'd been lying awake nights again, wondering how you're going to spend your share of Uncle Bert's 50,000 bucks. I never lie awake nights wondering how to spend any money that you ever got your hands on first. Well, you got something there. I've got better use for that money than letting it go into freak hats and imitation furs. Well, then stop harping about it. I don't care about the money. I don't want to see the money. I don't want to hear about the money. <laughs> what you call this, coffee? That's what it says on the can. Yeah, you could even make stuff out of a can taste rotten. Look, if you don't like it, go get your breakfast at Schwab's Drugstore. It's no pleasure for me. Well, I would if I could afford it. You know, you're not kidding me any, Lois. Kidding you? I stopped even trying to communicate with you. And that doesn't prevent you trying to make my life as miserable as possible, though, does it? Your life. What kind of a life do you think I've had this past year? I can't even remember the last time I had a, a civil conversation with you. And as for anything else, I'm nothing more than a housekeeper around here, a housekeeper that doesn't get paid. Yeah, it's tough. Sometimes I wonder how you stand it. So do I. But I know why, all right. Oh, you know everything. I told you you weren't kidding me any. As long as you think I'm going to get that inheritance from Uncle Bird, you'll stick to me like a leech, won't you? I told you I don't care about the money and I don't want to hear about the money. But enough about it. Even if your uncle is fool enough to leave it to you, which I doubt. Oh, sure, you don't care about the money. Not much. All I care about is having a decent life. Hmm. I've about come to the conclusion it's impossible for you to be decent to anybody. Well, if it's as bad as all that, why don't you get a divorce? Well, maybe I should. Maybe it's what time we talk divorce, George. Maybe it's just high time. Well, what's stopping you? Sometimes I wonder. Well, I don't. You'll never get a divorce as long as you think I might inherit 50,000 bucks. That's what you think? Yes. Well, I've thought about it. 
I've thought about it plenty. Then why don't you do something about it? Because I know you're too cheap to pay alimony in the lawyer's fees. That's why. (laughs) Is that honestly all that's worrying you? I'm certainly not worried by any illusions I might ever have had about you. All right. I'll pay the lawyer's fees in advance. And any reasonable alimony you can get a judge to grant you. You mean that, George? I never meant anything more in my life. Brother, you've got yourself a divorce. I tried to register shock and righteous indignation, but I could hardly keep my face straight. Lois was going to get a divorce. I'd been working on it for a year, ever since I'd realized that Uncle Bert was going to die and I was going to inherit his estate. Ever since I'd realized that under the community property laws of California, Lois would get half of it. Half of 50,000 bucks, I figured. Maybe even more. 50,000 bucks. I wasn't going to share that with Lois or anybody else. For a year, I'd been nagging her and insulting her and even knocking her around a little, but it was no use. She just turned sullen and took it. And so I'd just about given up thinking about divorce. I'd begun to think about something else for Lois. I'd begun to think about murder. Suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you Kirk Douglas in Community Property. Roma Wines' presentation tonight in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Well, now Lois is going to give me a divorce, at last. And Uncle Bert's $50,000 would be mine, as long as she started proceedings before I inherited And knowing Lois, I figured now that she'd finally decided. She'd probably go to work on it that very afternoon. When I drove out to Uncle Bert's later in the day, I was feeling like a kid just out of school. It was one of my regular visits, and I never missed. Three or four times a week. That was a bore and a pain. But I'm a guy that can put up with $50,000 worth of almost anything. Good afternoon, Mr. Mason. Oh, hi, Judson. Uh, How's the old boy feeling this afternoon? Not too well, I'm afraid, sir. Oh, gee, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, One of his bad days, eh? Rather difficult, yes, sir. Well, uh, do you suppose it's all right for me to see him? Oh, yes, sir. It's nothing that serious, I should say. He's called for his lawyer, Mr. Bernard, and for Dr. Thorpe. I should imagine he'd be quite able to see you as well. Yes, what is it? Your nephew, Mr. Mason, is here to see you, sir. All right, show him in. Hello, Uncle Bert. How are you feeling? Oh, not well, my boy. Not well. Not well at all. Well, go on, Judson. Close the door. Go about your business. Yes, sir. Yeah. Judson was saying you've had sort of a bad day. Ah, uh, yes. I'm completely bedridden now, as you see. I'm afraid the end is not far off, my boy. Oh, don't be silly, Uncle Bird. You'll live to be a hundred. No, no, no. I've called Dr. Thorpe. Oh, you can't scare me. Well, you call Dr. Thorpe every other day. I tell you, I'm sick. I'm dying. Are you going to sit there and argue with me? Oh, I know, Uncle Bird, but gee, I... Well, I hadn't realized it was that serious. Well, it's most serious. (laughs) I'm glad you came today. I'd have called you if you hadn't. Oh, I understand your, uh, your lawyer is coming over here. Oh, yes. I wish to be absolutely certain that my affairs are all in order before the end. 
Gee, Uncle Bert, well, gosh, it's hard to believe that anything could happen well, like that, I mean. Ah, my boy, there's no disputing with the Grim Reaper when your time comes. Oh, pull your, pull your chair a little closer. Sure. Ah, that's it. Ah, George, you have always been a good nephew to me. Of course, I know you're always thinking of the money. Oh, oh but that's, that's only natural. Oh, I don't care. Uncle Bird, now, now that's not fair. Uh, you're a liar, George. But you're a good liar. And that's a comfort to an old man. Of course, I don't know what you like in daily life. I've been ill so long. <laughs> Just average, I guess. Well, I wouldn't think so. Now, I imagine you're mean and greedy what? and thoroughly dishonest when it's safe to be. As I was. Well, it runs in the family. It's only natural, too. <laughs> you make me sound like a pretty bad guy, Uncle Bert. <laughs> All right. Only true to human nature, George, with a little dash of Mason family thrown in. Yes, you've always been a good nephew to me, George. Even though you may have been a hypocrite about it. And that's all anyone has a right to expect at my age. You won't have any reason to regret it. What? I wish you wouldn't talk that way, Uncle Berta. Uh, what way? Well, about the money and things like that. Uh, don't you want to hear about it? Well, well, have I ever asked you about it? I... No, no, you haven't, George. Uh, you've been very clever about that. But you may as well know now. Well, I... As my will stands now, my estate will be divided into two parts. Oh. Yes. One half of my estate will go as an endowment to my old school, Weymouth College. Half? Yes. Oh, is that? <coughs> Come in. Well, hello, Mr. Mason. How are we today? Uh, hmm? uh, uh, old man's handing out bad news today. Hmm? Now, in your case, I'm afraid you're about to lose a steady source of income, Doctor. Oh? Uh, meaning, uh... Meaning, meaning me. Yes, I'm afraid you're going to have to find some other victim to pay your office rent very soon now. Oh, <clears throat> uh, well. Yeah, you know my nephew, Corsco. Uh, sure. Uh, hi, Doc. Hello, George. Oh, oh, by the way, George, here. Here's a prescription your wife asked me to write out for her. You might have it filled on your way home if you have time. Sure, thanks. Yes, bad news all around. Now, George here, I've just informed him that I'm leaving half my money to my old school. <laughs> he looks mighty disappointed, doesn't he? Oh, now, Uncle Bertie, well, it's your money. Why should I be sore? Now, the pulse, please, Mr. Mason. Yeah. Thank you. Of course, I, I haven't told him all of it yet. You want to hear the rest, George? Huh? Well, whatever you say, Uncle Bert. Really, Mr. Mason, you yeah. shouldn't be talking too much. Your condition's not as good well, today as it might be. Oh, I know that. I, but as I was saying... Uh, uh, what was I saying? Oh, yes, well. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm leaving you fairly well provided for, George. Enough to give you a little start in life, anyway. Now, take it easy, Uncle Bert. It's you I care about, <laughs> not the money. I... Uh, uh, you're an accomplished liar, George. <laughs> That's the only word for it. But you can relax again. The other half is going to you. Well, you know you didn't have to do that, Uncle Bert. Well, not that I don't appreciate it, but... <laughs> I think it will help with it, George. You, you'll be able to use $500,000, won't you? What'd you say? <laughs> really, Mr. Mason, I must forbid you to get excited now. Your, your condition... 
Didn't you hear me, George? I, I said five. Uncle Bert. Uh, Mr. Mason. Uncle Bert. Uncle Bert, listen to me. I'm afraid listen. he's gone. Tell me what you said. For heaven's sake, man, have a little decency, can't you? He's dead. He can't be. It's some kind of a gag. Did you hear it? Five hundred thousand dollars. Oh, come in. I'm afraid you're too late, Bernie. Oh, Bernie, you drew up the will, you know. Oh, hello, George. Bernie, he said 500000 500000 You mean your inheritance? That's roughly what it comes to? Wow, half a million bucks. And permit me to be the first to congratulate you, George, on bearing up so well under your bereavement, that is. Half a million bucks, and he never told me. Why, the rotten old liar. <laughs> I left the house in a daze. I got in my car and started driving, just driving around. I don't know where I drove to. I just drove, and I must have spent that $500,000 500,000 different ways. But I wasn't in such a fog that I didn't do a little real thinking, too, about Lois. Because now if she got her divorce, she'd nick me for half that money anyway. And I wasn't having any of that. Not after what I'd been through. So it would have to be the other way. So I'd have to talk her out of the divorce or it looked too much like a motive. First, I wanted to be absolutely sure of everything. I spotted a corner drugstore. It was late for this time, but I had Bernie's home number, so it didn't matter. Then, on the way past the drug counter, I remembered the prescription Doc Thorpe had given me. I think I had the idea right then. Yes, sir? Uh, how long will it take you to fill this? Well, oh, that won't take any time. Okay. Uh, where's your phone? Just to your left, sir. Thanks. Bernie? Yeah. Uh, George Mason. Why, hello, George. I'm afraid you can't have the money tonight, old boy, but come in first thing tomorrow. Great kidder, aren't you? Listen, Bernie, I wanted to ask you something. Anything you ask will be charged against you from now on, George. Now, seriously, though, I, I met a friend of mine today, uh, well, a Texas oil man, but he married out here, and, well, he's having a little trouble with his wife. Send him around. I'll give him a discount. Well, maybe I'll do that, but all he wants now is free advice. You see, he's worried about this community property law. Well, it seems he came into quite a hunk of dough out here lately, and... Coincidence department, huh? Well, not exactly. This was, well, a deal, you know, real estate. Ah. Well, he wants to know if there's any way he can keep his wife from cutting in on it. Oh, a heel, huh? That's right. Well, not a chance, my boy. Any property accumulated in the normal course of affairs after the marriage is community property. That's the law. Yeah, that's what he was afraid of. Well, listen, though, George. You want to know something cute? Uh, nothing to do with your friend. Well, I gotta go, Bernie. Uh, I'm late. I'll call you tomorrow. Yeah, but, but I'm trying to tell you Well, something. save it till tomorrow, huh? Good night, Bernie. I was in no mood to listen to bright sayings. I had too much else to do. At the drug counter, I picked up a prescription. It was what I thought it was. Sedative, it said. She'd been taking stuff to make her sleep for quite a while now. At the next corner, I bought her the biggest box of candy I could find. Then I went home. To kill it. Lois? That's you, George. Yeah. You going to bed? Yes. You're late. Yeah, I... Well, I'll tell you about it. You don't need to. It's nothing unusual. I I know it isn't, Lois, and... Well, that's what I want to talk to you about. Oh. 
Here's something I picked up for you. What's this for? Nothing. I just thought you might like it. You must have wrecked a car or something. <laughs> no, but... Well, I've been doing a lot of thinking today, Lois. So have I. Well, you... You haven't done anything about that yet, have you? I, I mean, the divorce. Not yet. I know you're in a big hurry, but tomorrow will be time enough, won't it? Oh, now, listen, Lois. Like I said, I've been doing a lot of thinking today. Well, it was... It was quite a shock when you said that this morning. When I said it? Well, when, when it came up that way. I got to thinking. Well, I've been pretty rotten to you these last few months. Oh. And, well, I don't know why, but I have and I know. You haven't been exactly the ideal companion, George. Well, it's as though something was driving me, making me do things and say things that I didn't mean and I didn't want to, and I couldn't help myself. Gosh, I don't know what it's been. Worry, trying to scrape along with everything going sky high and running into debt and... Well, thinking about the old man's money. I don't know what it's been, but I know it's been awful. For me, too. And I know it's been ten times as bad for you. I know, George, but everybody has those kinds of worries nowadays. Well, I know. Well, they don't take it out on somebody else the way I have, but when you talked about divorce, it, it made me realize... I love you, Lois. I don't know how I could ever get along without you. Do you really mean that, George? I never meant anything more in my life. Just give me another chance, Lois. I'll do anything. I'll go to a psychiatrist or something. I know it's been my fault, but I can change. If you'll help me, I can change overnight. It'll be the way it used to be, huh? <laughs> oh, George. Oh, God, darling. I know. I've been a terrible oh, heel. I, I knew it wasn't really you. It hasn't been all your fault either. Yeah. I've been selling the nasty. But I had to do something to self-defense. Keep from going crazy. Because I love you so. Oh, now, there, there, baby. It'll be different now. I've learned my lesson, oh, honestly. George. I know it will if we try, if we both just try. We used to be so happy. We're going to be happy again, too. You see, happier than ever. I know it. <laughs> you know, I think I'll really sleep tonight for the first time in months. Good. I've been so nervous lately, I've just been a wreck. Oh, say, that reminds me. I ran into Doc Thorpe today, and he gave me a prescription of yours. I had it filled on the way home. Here. Mm -hmm. Oh, my sleeping pills. That's funny. You're thinking about that now, and I probably won't need them anymore. You better take one anyway, just to be on the safe side, huh? Say, maybe I'll take one, too. Gee, it's been a pretty tough day. <laughs> All right. I, I guess tonight maybe I'm almost too happy to sleep. <laughs> Would you warm up a little milk for me, darling? Take them with? Why, sure, honey. I'll fix you right up. Thanks, I went downstairs and started warming the milk. I'd had the stuff hidden away for a couple of months now. It was a narcotic that would have the same effects as the sleeping pills and show up the same way in an autopsy. I put some sugar and cinnamon in the milk to cover the taste and then dumped in enough of the stuff to kill a horse. Then I took it up to her. Thanks, darling. Yeah. Oh. That's nice. What'd you put in it? Oh, just sweeten it up a little. Sweet to sweet. <laughs> oh, here's your pill. Thank you. Oh. It tastes a little funny. Oh. It's nice, but kind of funny. Oh, yes. Maybe I got the milk a little too hot, huh? It always tastes funny when it's boiled. Uh -huh. uh, I have to drink it all now. That's a good girl. Uh -huh. There. 
feeling sleepy? Uh-huh. All of a sudden. Well, now, you lie down and let me tuck you in and you get a good sleep. Uh-huh. And tomorrow, we'll start all over again. Oh, yeah. A new life. That's right. Tomorrow, there'll be a brand new life. <laughs> I took the glass downstairs and washed it out thoroughly and brought it back again half empty. I dumped about three quarters of the sleeping pills down the drain and then tipped the bottle over on the bedside table to give things that reckless look and went to bed. <laughs> you think that's pretty funny, I suppose. Lying down in the next bed to someone you know is dying will be dead before morning. Someone you just murdered. Well, maybe it is. But all I was thinking of was that 500,000 bucks and spending it over and over another million different ways as I went off to sleep, and believe it or not, I slept like a baby. I woke up early feeling great, not knowing why for a minute, and then I remembered. I went over to look at Lois. She was lying just the way I'd left her. I put out my hand and touched her arm. That was all I needed to know. She was cold. Stone cold. Dr. Thorchoff. Give me the doctor. Quick, quick. Who's calling, please? What's the dip? George Mason, hurry, please. Hello, George. What's oh, Doc, trouble? listen, you got to come right over here. Something's happened, something terrible. What is it, George? Lois, those pills you gave her. She's taken almost all of them. I can't get her to move. Now, wait a minute, George. Wait a minute. Are you sure there isn't some mistake? I know there isn't. She's cold. You'd better call the police, George. Uh, Police? Yes. Yes, it's usual in such cases. I'll be over, but you'd better call the police. In about half an hour, they arrived. Two plainclothes dicks and a man from the coroner's office. He and one of the dicks went in to look at Lois. And the other one stayed outside, talking to me. I know it's a trying time for you, Mr. Mason. I can't understand it. I can't understand it. Had you and your wife had any uh, quarrels? No. Well, well, we had our little spat, but nothing more than any other married couple. Nothing to make her do a thing like that. Had she been taking these uh, sedatives long? Well, the last few months. I don't know exactly why. Well, she'd been nervous and upset. You know, she wasn't getting any younger, of course. Uh, but she took them on the advice of a physician, she was under a physician's care, I suppose. Oh, yes, Dr. Alexander Thorpe. Well, he saw her regularly. But he never told me there was anything mental. Mm-hmm. Oh, how about it, Doc? Narcotic poisoning. Pretty clear. That bottle was full. When she went to work on it, she took enough to kill her, all right. Well, I got it filled for only last night. Well, I guess that's about all, Mr. Mason. We'll, I'm Dr. Uh... Thorpe, the family physician. Oh, hello, John. Hello, Alex. Uh, you know Lieutenant Farley? How do you do, Lieutenant? Hello, Doc. Hello, George. You want to see the, uh... I take it Mrs. Mason is dead? Uh-huh. Narcotic poisoning. Your uh, prescription, wasn't it, Alex? Yes. Yes, so it was. But, uh, I'm afraid there's some discrepancy here. Discrepancy? Yes. I had been prescribing sedatives for Mrs. Mason for some time. Lately, however, I reached the conclusion that her mental health was such that the possession of drugs in any quantity would be dangerous. My last prescription, therefore, contained no sedative of any kind. What did it contain? Nothing. Sugar and a neutral base. Why? If Mrs. Mason died of poisoning, the poison was administered to her. 
in some other form. You said, uh, administered? I did. From the evidence, I can reach no other conclusion. Neither can I. Well, Mr. Mason? Can I call my lawyer? You're entitled to do that. And for where I sit, bud, looks like you're going to need a good one. That'd be a lesson to you, George. Before you commit a murder, always check with your attorney. Great kidder, huh, Bernie? Sure. You had only told me this on the phone yesterday. Instead of that cock and bull story about a friend from Texas, I could have saved you a lot of trouble. Oh. I tried to tell you, money that you earn or make in business is community property. Money that you inherit is not. What? That 500 grand would have been all yours, George. Uh, you see what I mean? <laughs> Next time, check with your attorney. Check with your attorney. A great kidder. Now, he says, don't worry. If he can get me off the gas chamber, I'll still have the worst years of my life ahead of me. How do you like that? say Phil Martin's run dry? Well, I didn't make it up. My wife got it from Ann. Hasn't written a word in six months. Yes, and I got it from Peterson, his publisher. They've dropped him from their spring list. Well, bye-bye, Dean of American Mystery Writers. I'm glad to see him go. Phil Martin. I thought that guy'd write from the grave. I don't understand it. I guess it happens to the best of us. Hope he saved his money, but I suspect he hasn't. Phil Martin run dry. I don't get it. I don't get it. No, I didn't get it either. Unless you border on that fringe of abnormality which marks you as a writer, you can't possibly understand the complete futility you feel when your talent is suddenly turned off like a water spout. I spent as much time staring at the blank paper in my typewriter as I ordinarily spent in writing an entire novel. Oh, Anne could sympathize with me because she loved me. But I didn't need Anne's stupid sympathy. Phil. Phil, darling, I, I'm sure it's only Temporary? Temporary? And I can't even write a decent ten-word telegram. And it's no use, Anne. I'm afraid I'm through. Oh, no, you can't be. Not anyone as great as you. Phil, maybe you've done too much. Darling, maybe you'll rest. Why, <laughs> why don't you rest for a few months? I've been resting. Well, I, I mean, get away. Yes, that's my last chance, dear. I'm going to do just that. I'm going abroad. Abroad? Oh, honey, when are we going? We aren't going. I am. I... You're... Phil, is, is this a way of letting... I mean, you... Oh, don't worry, dear. I'm not running out on you. I'll just be gone for a few months. Oh. Oh, well, just a few months. Yes, alone. And I told you when I first met you, I'm a complex person. I'm difficult to understand. Yes, yes, dear, I know that. I, But I thought I understood you. Well, you can't. Nobody can. But I love you, Phil. And I love you, Anne, but that doesn't change matters. I'm going to England for a few months by myself. You don't have a thing to worry about. You keep your apartment and wait for me. The rent's paid through the first of the year. I'll be back before that.
Fleming was the beautiful, not overly intelligent type of girl I've associated with since my divorce. Her only family was a half-brother, a petty hoodlum whose habit of always wearing gloves won him the imposing nickname of Kid Gloves. That hadn't helped when he ran his car into a storefront, killing two people just a block from where he'd held up a tavern. Kid Gloves had gone to jail three months before I met Ann to serve 40 years for manslaughter and robbery. <laughs> a very corny plot, the whole thing, including Ann. As I roamed around London, I thought maybe a visit in this city of great mystery tradition would be my answer. And it was. The second day, while wandering around aimlessly in the bombed-out and still-unrepaired section of Bloomsbury, I stumbled onto my last inspiration quite by accident. Oh, say, uh, when was all this hit? Oh, right at the start of the war, sir. Oh, then this isn't V-bomb damage. Lord, no, Governor. As a matter of fact, the old house across the street had it the first night Jerry come over. Uh-huh. I'd almost say it was the first house to be hit in the war. Oh, well, did it take only one bomb to level it like that? Well, how many do you think it takes? They've cleaned it up a bit now. Old house, that too. Built back in 1750. Hmm, really? Yeah, pretty well known. Lots of Yanks made their digs there. Uh, before the war, that is. Uh, a Yankee writer stayed there once when he was here. Uh, what was his name, Ducky? Oh, E.P. Rowe. No, Poe, Poe. Oh, that, that's it. Poe? Say, so you don't mean Edgar Allan Poe, do you? That's him, that's him. What, Edgar Allan Poe once stayed in that house? That's right, American writer. Acquaintance of yours? Well, well, hardly a contemporary. What? Oh, oh nothing. My little Halbert was playing in the rubble there Tuesday last and dug out a box of junk. Maybe some of it was Mr. Poe's. Like to see it? Why, yes, certainly. Well, it's vaguely possible. I looked through the battered steel box. The woman provided me with a cup of tea as I spread the contents out in front of me. It was thrilling somehow to think that these dusty things perhaps had once belonged to the man who had invented the detective story more than a hundred years ago. As she went out and I replaced the trinkets... I snagged the faded, musty, gray satin lining of the box and accidentally tore it. Trying to get it back together, I only ripped it further. I put my hand under the lining to straighten it, and something fell out. It was a waterproof packet containing three yellowed sheets of paper written in a small, fine hand. At the bottom of the third page was the name Edgar Allan Poe. I slipped the packet into my pocket and returned the box. Oh, uh, find anything? Oh, well, no. Just as you said, a lot of worthless trinkets. Oh, uh, by the way, I I ripped the lining as I was putting everything back. Oh, that's all right. Oh, no, I'd like to give you something for your trouble and for my clumsy damage. Uh, here, and thank you so much. Five quid? Oh, I say, five quid... But the old thing probably ain't worth a threepenny bit. Well, your time, your trouble, and your courtesy are, though. Thank you very much. But five quid. Oh, I say. Five pounds for an original Edgar Allan Poe manuscript. It was a short story written by Poe during his brief stay in England many years before his rise and subsequent fall. As I read and reread the manuscript, 
I realized that it was an experiment in a completely new mystery technique. Here, in effect, was what Pulte had never discovered in his thesis on the existence of only 32 basic dramatic situations. Suddenly, I realized I was the only one who knew this story and that I could put it to better use than as a museum piece. Why, here indeed was the 33rd situation. Why, in my hands, it could blossom forth as a novel, a film, a radio play. I was about to be reborn, and literary immortality was at my fingertips. I began writing in London and all the way back home. It took me six months to complete my work, and then, with everything finished, I burned the original Poe composition and sent the novel off to the publisher. Then I called Anne. Darling. Big success. Well, I've never been as confident of anything in my life. Oh, that's wonderful. They said you were through. <laughs> I told you, a rest was all I needed, a change of scenery. I'm proud of you, Phil. I'm so proud. I'm glad. Maybe now you... Now, Phil, maybe maybe you'll think differently about things. I'm so glad. Phil, you aren't even listening to me. Huh? Oh, oh I, I'm sorry, dear. <laughs> oh, look, look, Anne. I'm going to be pretty busy for the next few weeks. Now, I won't be able to see you very often. I should think you'd have time now that the... Well, I haven't, but we'll see. We have a date tonight. Well, I'm going to the Mystery Writers' Banquet tonight. And tomorrow? Well, well, okay, but I'll come over for you at 8 o'clock, and for once, will you try to be ready on time? Every year on the anniversary of Edgar Allan Poe's birth... The Mystery Writers of America hold a banquet, similar to the Academy Award Banquet. Instead of awarding Oscars, they give Edgars for the outstanding works of the year. All of a sudden, everybody was looking at me. Now I have a special Edgar to give. This special award goes to the first writer to discover a new and startling different approach to the mystery story since the death of our patron saint, the great Edgar Allan Poe himself. Philip Martin, for your novel, Markham's Death. Yes, a special Edgar for an idea plagiarized from Edgar Allan Poe. The end had justified the means, and I knew that the original manuscript was now only ashes. I was the only one who had ever seen it. I was completely happy and enjoying my victory after the banquet in the quiet of my own home. Mr. Martin? Yes, speaking. This is Dr. Selgrove. Uh, Dr. Selgrove? Yes, I'm head of the Academy of American Letters. I want to congratulate you, Mr. Martin. I was at the banquet tonight. Oh, well, thank you, sir. Uh, well, yes, indeed. I- I've been uh, collecting data on Edward Allan Poe all my life. Uh, your work was in the finest traditions of Poe. Well, that is the supreme compliment, Doctor. Uh, Mr. Martin, what did you find behind the lining in that steel box in London? What? It was you, wasn't it? Well, I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, in the truest Poe tradition. So much so that I have reason to believe your idea was once Poe's. Now, look, Doctor, I, I hope you haven't spread this misinformation around. Why, you're wrong, of course, but, well, even the faintest suggestion could do me irreparable harm. If you mean, uh, have I been discreet, sir, I have, until now. Well, look, how do you want me to disprove this ridiculous accusation? I'm at the academy every day. I'll be there tomorrow night until 9.30. The doors close at 8, but I'll wait for you. That will be fine, doctor. I'll be there around 9. 
And as I set the receiver back on the hook, I wondered just how much he actually knew and what I would have to do to silence him. The hands of the clock on the wall seemed drugged. They moved so slowly that day. My appointment with Dr. Selgrove was for 9 p.m. I was to be at Ann's at 8. I figured about 20 minutes would wipe that slate clean. Hello, honey. I'll be ready in a minute. I said I'd be here at 8. Oh, dear. It isn't 8 already, is it? Yes, it's after 8. Oh, I thought it was only about 7.30. I'll hurry. Well, there's no reason. Aren't we going out? No, Ann, we're not going out. As a matter of fact, we're never going out again. What? I'm sorry, Ann. This is the last time we'll see each other. But, but I, I, when, Phil, I, I've, I've told everyone. That... What have you told everyone? Well, that we were going to be married. What? You shouldn't have. Did I ever say I'd marry you? No, I was married once, and it doesn't work for me. This would be different. Oh, would it? I don't think so. You see, Anne, you're taking up too much of my time. But I wouldn't get in the way, Phil. You know you're that. You're also I... taking up too much of my thoughts. I probably hit that bad slump a few months ago because of you. Phil. Oh, it wasn't your fault. It was mine for not realizing it. Phil, you, you, you really mean oh, to... Oh, now look. <laughs> what about me? What about me? What am I going to do? You'll get over it. Here, this should help. What's that? Take it. Just what you like. A roll of nice, clean, new $50 bills. Mm. Feel better now? You think you can buy everything with money, don't you? Well, you can't. And stop drumming with that letter opener. Oh, sorry, I didn't realize. It. Well, that takes care of everything, doesn't it? We're still friends? No. No, we'll never be friends. Phil Martin, you're rotten. You're rotten and you're conceited and you're, you're everything I've ever. I hate you. I said I don't like scenes. Goodbye, Anne. Get out of here. As I left her apartment, I paused to look at my watch. It was 8.30. I noticed a man fade back into the darkness of a doorway, but outside of the fact that he looked vaguely familiar, I thought nothing more of it. I felt as though a weight had been lifted from my shoulders, at least from one shoulder. And I was on my way to lift the weight from the other one. The Academy of American Letters was just a short distance from Anne's apartment. Mr. Martin? Yes. I take it you're Dr. Selgrove. That's right. Uh, sit down, Mr. Martin. I'll stand, thank you. You were at the banquet last night. I remember seeing you. And when I saw you, I knew my search was over. You fit the description just like the missing piece in a jigsaw puzzle. I knew you were the man Mrs. Carruthers described. Well, who is Mrs. Carruthers? The woman who gave you the steel box. The box which must have contained the Edgar Allan Poe manuscript you so skillfully rewrote. Preposterous. You deny that you were in London? Well, no, but... Or that you found the box and examined it? Well, well no, but uh, I, Mr. I... Martin, a poverty-stricken woman like Mrs. Carruthers couldn't forget a man who gave her five pounds. She could forget seeing him slip a packet into his pocket... That is, until someone came along and gave her ten pounds to refresh her memory. <laughs> For ten pounds, she probably dreamed up the whole story. Look, you say you know something of Poe. Then you know that the time he spent in London was long before his prominence as an author. 
Why, for all we know, he didn't write a line during his entire stay there. Mr. Martin, I've devoted my life to gathering information about Edgar Allan Poe. It's my hobby as well as my job. I've been looking for one missing manuscript for a long time. A manuscript whose existence I learned of by quite by chance. What are you talking about? Uh, This letter which Edgar Allan Poe wrote to a cousin in Boston during his London visit. Fine piece, isn't it? Well, what about it? Let me read it to you. He says, My new theory for a tale of murder is a form of induction as opposed to deduction. I refer to it as Markhamism after the title character. My first draft manuscript is stored behind a satin curtain built of steel to age and mellow until such a time as I may produce it without being turned mad. I see. Dear me, you were overconfident, Martin, calling your novel Markham's death. Not only didn't you change the process, you didn't even alter the name. And if I should admit to all this... What would be your price? (laughs) Now, Mr. Martin, money's of no consequence. I'm a student, a collector of American letters. All I want from you is the manuscript. Impossible. In return for my everlasting silence. Possessing the manuscript is payment enough. I have no desire to ruin you. Unless, of course, it should become necessary for me to do so. How would I know you wouldn't show it? Certainly you don't question my word. The manuscript has been destroyed. Don't expect me to believe that. It's the truth. I burned it. Well, if you want to be difficult, I won't agree with you, Mr. uh, Martin. Uh, Pity you won't cooperate. I'll just put this letter back in the safe, and then tomorrow we'll uh, we'll see. Uh! Panic fled with the return of cold logic. Dr. Selgrove was unquestionably dead. I had to act quickly because speed was essential. I knew that from what I myself had often written. I took the letter and pocketed it to be burned later in the privacy of my own home. There would be no suspicious ashes for the police to sift. The bookend was the only thing I touched. I carefully filled the wash basin with hot water and dropped the bookend into it, smearing and obliterating any fingerprints. Now, I had to work backwards. The average murderer establishes his alibi first. But in my case, I had to establish it behind me and cover my time. Most people are careless about exact times and and can be off many minutes, especially in their recollection. Have you ever looked at your watch, then had someone ask you the time only to find that you had to look again? (laughs) Yes, Anne would work as my alibi. I couldn't confide in her, but she was careless about time. But what of the man I'd seen in her hall at 8.30? Suddenly, I knew. It was Anne's brother, Kid Gloves Fleming. Now that I thought about it, I knew I recognized him from his pictures. He'd obviously escaped from prison and had gone to Anne for help. Yes, Anne would be more than happy to say I'd been with her until a quarter to nine. Unobserved, I hurried back to her apartment house... In front of the building, I hailed a passing taxi and entered at precisely 9-5. Where to, mister? Uh, The Milford Club on 59th. Not many taxis in this neighborhood, are there? Were you waiting long? Ten or fifteen minutes. I I wanted to be at the club by nine. Oh, it's almost that now. Is that all? I thought it was later. Oh, well, I'll get you there fast. Oh, that's all right. There's no hurry. Oh, 
evening, Mr. Martin. Oh, good evening, Henry. Well, not many coats being checked tonight, are there? Uh, no, sir. But look at all those hats. Let me see. Hmm. Seems as though I've misplaced my watch. Oh. Uh, have you the time, Henry? Why, sure. It's uh, 20 minutes after 9. Oh, thanks. Well, <laughs> I seem to be losing everything tonight. Oh, what's wrong? Well, I've dropped my notebook. Oh, I must have dropped it in that taxi. Was it important? Well, just to me, I had some personal notes in there. Oh, look, I wonder, Henry, if you'd call the cab company for me and ask if it's turned in. Oh, sure. Thanks. My name and address are engraved in the cover. As a matter of fact, I even recall the name of the driver. Good. It struck me as unusual. It was Alonzo P. Alonzo. I'll take care of it. Thanks. Oh, and you might add that I'll post a $25 reward. Then I went down to see Lieutenant John Kirkland of Homerside. We'd been classmates, and I'd spent many an evening at headquarters discussing our favorite subject, crime. Well, 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 hello, hello, Phil. Hiya, Johnny. Anything on the docket? Oh, just routine. Uh, mind if I sit in? I want to get my mind off Anne. Anne? Well, what's the matter? Oh, you know, Johnny, the usual. I, I wrote Finney to our little romance, and... Well, she wasn't too happy about it. <laughs> Still a dog with the women, eh, kid? <laughs> oh, say, hmm? say, this is a coincidence. Remember that wild kid brother of Anne's? Kid brother? Oh, oh, you mean the one they call Kid Gloves? Mm -hmm. Well, I remember reading about him. Why? Well, he broke out of jail late this afternoon. Uh-oh. Say, Anne will certainly be worried. Well, she won't have to worry anymore. What? Yeah, they caught him down at the railroad station trying to get out of town. What? Uh, are they bringing him in? Yeah. Stiff. Oh. Yeah, the poor fool decided to shoot it out, and he picked a crack shot like O'Malley to draw on. Oh, uh, well, is O'Malley all right? <laughs> oh, sure, O'Malley's always all right. But the kid's dead. Oh, this is going to be tough on Anne. Even though they didn't get along, he's still their, her brother. Well, she'll get over it. I, I guess it's better this way. Uh, that's a funny thing, though. He was still wearing those kid gloves... And he had a roll of new $50 bills that would choke a horse. Now I understood. Anne's brother had visited her just after I left, and she'd given him the money. Well, I was completely relaxed now. The only person who could possibly spoil my perfect story was dead. Oh, uh, pardon me, Phil, please. Sure. Hello. Uh, this is Kirkland speaking. Oh, when? I see. Who? Oh, Martin. Huh? Why, why, he's right here. I said he's right here. Oh, is it for me? Uh, just a second, Phil, please. Yeah. Okay. Let me know. I'll send him right out. Hey, what's up, Johnny? I thought that call was for me. No, no, it uh, it wasn't for you, Phil. It it was about you. Well, about me? Yeah. Where were you this evening? I told you. I had dinner, went over to see Anne, and then met you. Well, weren't you anyplace else? Uh, are you sure? Well, of course I'm sure. Say, Johnny, what is this, the third degree? Do you remember what time you left Anne's? Why, well, I must have left about a quarter of nine. Yes, I'm sure of that. It was just about nine when I caught my cab. Was anyone with you? Uh, at Anne's, no. We were alone. Couldn't you be mistaken? 
Couldn't you have been someplace else, maybe at 8.15 or 8.30? No. Why, Phil, why do you play right into my hands? Why do you make it impossible for me to help you? What are you talking about? Murder, Phil. I'm... I'm arresting you. For murder. In a few hours, I'm going to be executed for the murder of Dr. Selgrove. But the police don't know that yet. You see, although I'm innocent of the crime I'm scheduled to die for, I'm powerless to save myself. Yes, I backed out of my own crime successfully. Only I set myself squarely in the middle of a worse one. The only way I can save myself is by telling that I was busy killing Dr. Selgrove at the time I'm supposed to have killed Anne Fleming. I know that Anne was killed by her brother, but there's no way of proving it. The letter opener he plunged into her chest still had my fingerprints, slightly smeared by his kid gloves. Robbery was ruled out because nothing was disturbed. Snooping neighbors had heard Anne and me quarrel and had heard her scream around a quarter of nine. They suspected that I had hit her and nothing more. But it placed the time exactly, exactly as I had placed myself in her company during that time. <laughs> well, I see where they dug up another original, hitherto unknown manuscript by Edgar Allan Poe in somebody's closet in Fordham, New York. It's all about a man who builds such a perfect alibi for himself that he gets executed for the wrong murder. Well, I'm glad they only found it today, after I had already written the above confession. Otherwise, they'd say I'd been plagiarizing Poe again. started the first day of the job. I was clerking the liquor department of this supermarket. I hadn't been in Los Angeles a week. My brother, when I'd left New York, had given me this letter to a friend of his, a guy who owned a string of these markets. The letter was about could he use me. I was a good fellow. He'd counted a favor, you know. And the guy had this opening, liquor clerk. And comes the following Monday. I'm at work. I spent the morning loading the refrigerators with beer, soda water, all that stuff. And sizing up the place. You know, back east, we don't have these supermarkets. There was a vegetable department run by a nice little dark guy. There was a delicatessen. That was run by an old geezer and his frau. There was a bakery department, a meat department, and of course, the groceries. No clerks. You pushed a little cart around and helped yourself. To get out, you passed the cash register, and the girl loaded your stuff and rang up the price. My uh, surveillance of the place had reached the girl who checked the groceries when the trouble started. She was looking at herself in a little mirror and putting on some lipstick. Her back was to me. I see her stop putting on the lipstick, but still looking at the mirror. I see her eyes in the mirror. And then she turns around very slowly and looks at me. Just looks at me. She must have been 50 feet away at the least, and with customers between us. 
But it was like we were all alone, the two of us on a beach somewhere, an empty beach. I should have looked away. I should have winked and forgotten it. I should have gone on stacking beer and thinking about how to be a success. That's what I should have done. What I did do was I stood right there and locked eyes with her for I don't know how long. And all the time I was looking at her, I was sending her mental telegrams. You and me, baby. You and me. Hey. Hey, you. Hey. You and me, baby. Hey, what's the matter? Sleep on huh? your feet? Uh, oh, what'd you say? Uh, you the new guy, huh? Yeah, I, I just started this morning. Uh, I'm Nick Arno. I work the vegetables. Oh, Harry Carr. Pleased to know you. Yeah. You got two bottles of cold beer? Oh, sure. Cold as a witch's heart. Only don't open beer by the counter, you know. It's the law. Yeah, sure. I have them out back with my lunch. Well? Oh, uh, 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 uh Nick. What? Uh, the, uh, the gal over there by the cash register. Huh? Mary? Is that her name? Mary? Yeah. What about her? Well, that's what I'm wondering. What about her? Oh. No soap. But... She's married. Oh, you're kidding. You see that big guy over there with a the knife? The butcher? Yeah. Ask him if I'm kidding. Well, who's he? Her husband. Uh... Oh. See ya. I looked over at him. <laughs> He's a funny-looking guy, a real creep. He stood there stropping a tremendous big cleaver, whistling to himself. He had on, you know, one of those hard straw hats and a white apron. He had those rimless glasses with thick lenses so that his eyes looked like baseballs. When he saw I was looking at him, he nodded and went on whistling and stropping. It's a real creep. Later on, I watched him softening up some sort of steaks. He had a big steel mallet with points on it. He was whacking away at this meat like a pile driver. I watched him grinding and slicing, quartering, sawing the bones off some of the cuts. And always those eyes like baseballs. And that teeny little mouth lost in the big red face, whistling. And I looked over at her, and she was giving me the eye again. We closed at seven. The vegetable guys carted out the old stuff. Delicatessen man put away his pickles. I checked the register, counted my slips, made my entries. Krause the butcher was still there, packing and cleaning, putting stuff in that big refrigerator room back of the counter, but she'd left. I got to my street coat and walked out. Hello? She was standing, looking at the shoe display a couple of doors down from the market. I said hello. Don't you say hello wherever it is you come from? Sure. Hello. Taking the bus? Yeah. Which way do you go? Down to Western. I'm going that way. I'll drive you. Uh, no, no, I, uh, I don't think you'd better. What's the matter? I, I wouldn't want to trouble you. No trouble. Well, uh... Come on. I'm parked right here. Yeah, but what about, uh, Mr. Krause? He'll be there an hour yet. He takes the bus. Oh. Come on. Well, I, uh... Come on. Don't yeah, be afraid. I'm not afraid You're of you. You're afraid I... of me. I... Come right. on. Get in. Mr. 
<laughs> so all day long, I'm pushing liquor at them. Now they're pushing it at me. <laughs> oh, you're cute, Harry. I mean it. You're really cute. Ah, so are you, baby. You really think so? Sure, baby. Harry, let's get out of here. Go someplace else. Hey, hey, wait, wait a minute. I got to work in the morning. Hey, silly, this is the morning. It is. Hey, hey, Mac, what's the time? Uh, 2.30. Harry, Harry, you really think I'm cute? Oh, sure, baby. Look, but it's late, real late. Don't worry, look, look, sugar. Look, come on. I'll take you home. No, no. I'll take you home. Felt lousy the next morning. I'm not much of a drinker. She looked fresh as a daisy, smiling and joking with the customers. I didn't look over there. I didn't want to. I didn't want to think about what she must have gone on between her and Krauss when she got in. He didn't look happy. I knew why. I kept waiting for him to turn those baseball eyes on me. But he never did. Just went on smashing, slicing, grinding, sawing, all that. came out that night, she was there. I tried to disregard her, Harry! She... Yeah, she said she had something very serious to talk over. Well, the way she said it, I got in the car again. It's awful, Harry. Really, you yeah. don't know. Yeah, I guess it's You, you just wouldn't believe some yeah. of it. Look, Mary, He's I... He's crazy jealous. Well, of you? <laughs> That's silly. Well, I guess it's... Jealous that... of me. Or should I say of you? Me? Hmm. What's he know about me? Well, I got him this morning and there he was, sitting up like Grandma in his bathroom. He says, where you been? I said, what's it to you, Auntie? <laughs> they call him Auntie. It drives him crazy. Now look, Mary, So I... he said... Don't think you can fool me. And then he started to cry and then say a lot of things about Babylon and then sitting on the waters. Real crazy talk. Look, I, I better go, Mary. Oh, I don't... Harry, don't be silly. He doesn't know who you are, who it is. Yeah, but he could find out. Not unless I told him. Oh, look, you, you wouldn't do that. <laughs> of course not, baby. As long as you're good to me. The next night I stayed in the market I was scared I didn't want any more of that stuff I did inventory, counted bottles Cleaned the refrigerator Changed the water in the soft drinks cooler I kept busy Across the market Krauss was moving around Cleaning up After a while he took off his apron And his straw hat And he came over uh, Hello, Mr. Krauss. Uh, give me a bottle of beer. Sure thing. Uh, all right to drink it here? Sure. We're, we're closed, aren't we? Yeah. Oh here. oh, here. Here's an opener. Thanks. Uh, you're working late, huh? Well, you know how it is. Nothing to do evenings. No? Nah. I I'm new out here. Takes time to make friends. Yeah. For me, maybe it would take time. But not for a good-looking young fellow like yourself. Oh, I don't know. You're a big, broad-shouldered guy. Yeah, yeah. sure, big. That's me. Uh, how's the beer? 
It's all right. Listen, do you know my wife? Uh, your wife? Yeah, you know her? She, uh... Oh, isn't she the one who checks the groceries? Yeah. Oh, very nice-looking lady. You think so? Well, of course, I... Oh, don't get me wrong. I, I mean it very sincerely. A very nice, respectable-looking... Yeah, sure. She... Listen, have you noticed anything funny going on there? Funny? Somebody's playing around with her. And I want to find out who. With her? You wouldn't think it now, would you? No, I should say not. I don't know who it is, but listen, haven't you noticed anything? I mean, uh, some guy who shoots the breeze with her or something like that? No, uh, no. Uh, Uh, Then uh, will you do me a favor? Sure. What? Keep your eyes open. Oh, I will, Mr. Krauss. I promise you. Uh, uh, I'll find the guy. I'll find out who he is if it takes a year. And when I do, I'll kill him. Good night. Good night. See how it happens? You go along, minding your own business, trying to be a sweet guy and a whammy. Up pops the devil. The roof caves in and there you are. The executioner's honing the axe and whistling to himself. I tell you, I was nervous. My hands were sweating and my teeth were aching. And, well, if it hadn't been for needing the job bad, I'd have put on my coat and hightailed it out of there but fast. It was a situation. And Mary's looking over at me every now and then, giving me the big eyes. Yeah, the heck with you, baby. Get yourself another boy. And Krauss is looking over, raising his eyebrows. Do I know who it is yet? And I'm making a long face and shaking my head. Then Nick, the vegetable man, comes over. I see you didn't understand what I told you the other day. What's that, Nick? About Mary. I told you she was a married woman. Oh, what are you talking about? I see you, the both of you, coming out of a bar the other morning. You're nuts, Nick. Don't pull the hard face with me, Harry. What? I ought to tip Krauss off to what's going on. Nick. Nick, be a good guy, will you? Be a good guy, will you? I'm telling you, you better be a good guy. And leave the butcher's wife alone if you know what's good for you. Look, I will, Nick, I will. I swear it. It was a mistake, that's all. Yeah. Oh, be a good guy, Nick. Forget about it. All right. This once, okay. But do it again and you'll get what's coming to you. Sure, Nick. And I'm not just... Sure. Harry. What? Blow, will you? Blow. Harry, I wish you wouldn't treat me this Look, way. Look, blow, get away. Look at me, Harry. Don't you know your husband's watching ah, you? He's got his glasses off. He couldn't see Hollywood Bowl. You better be nice to me, Harry. Please, Mary. Please go back to your cash register. I want to see you tonight. No. Oh, yes. Look, understand me, Mary. You're poison. Now get away. You'll see me, Look, Harry, I'm or not... you'll see Krauss. All right. Where? I'll be part. Around the corner. Around the corner. Don't be late. Oh, Harry. Stop being silly. Come on, get in. Look, please, can't you understand? I don't want any trouble. What are you so afraid of? Trouble. Oh, come on, baby. Let's go and have some fun, huh? What's the matter? Oh. Hello, Nick. I warn you. Listen, you've got it wrong, Nick. Oh, no. What? 
What is all this? You shut up. Don't you talk to me like that. I talk to you like I please, Chief. Harry! Hit him, Harry! I didn't hit him. He was looking down his nose at me, and he was a nice, wide-open target, but I didn't hit him. Because all of a sudden, I knew what I had to do, and I knew I had to do it fast. Harry! Hey, where are you going, baby? I didn't turn. Nick was still back to beside the car. I went into the market. Mr. Kraus? Mr. Kraus? Yeah? I, uh, uh, I... What? I found out. What? I can't hear you. I said I found out. I found out who it is. Who? Nick. The vegetable man. Yeah. The vegetable man. I knew yesterday, but I didn't want to get him in trouble. I told him to lay off, but he said nuts. He said if I opened my mouth, he'd tell you it was me, that I was the, the one. The vegetable man. I, I'm sorry, Mr. Cross. I never did like him. I never did like him. Well, uh, good night. Good night. I took a bottle of brandy home with me. No dinner. I just laid there on the bed about three hours, talking to myself. Finally, the heck with the job. I got up, started the pack. I was broke, but I didn't care. I'd have to skip out of my rent, but it didn't matter. I didn't care. I wanted out from Krauss, from Mary, from Nick, and... Suddenly, I, I figured that even if Nick was a snooping little rat with his holier-than-now, I, I ought to clear him. So I wrote a note to Krauss. I said, uh, I did it, Krauss. Don't blame anybody else. I took the note in my bag and the key to the market, and I tiptoed out of the rooming house. I caught a bus and went to the market. The boulevard was deserted. I looked into the glass door. In the back of the place up high, there was a red neon beer sign that blinked on and off, on and off. I unlocked the door, went in, Locked the door behind me. Oh, place is kind of eerie in the dark. What with that red light blinking on and off. And one minute the place was pitch black and the next it was a thousand little red lights bouncing off the canned stuff in the groceries part. I went to the butcher counter first. I laid the note on the scale where he'd be sure to see it. Then I crossed over past the vegetables and the bakery, past delicatessen to the liquor department. Dark and I kept bumping into things, and I thought, well, why am I acting like a criminal? So I turned on the light. The whole place was suddenly so dazzling, it hurt my eyes. I looked at the cash register. I was just thinking, well, maybe I'll take a couple of bucks. When it happened, I hadn't touched it. Well, there were other switches in the place, I didn't know where. After the brightness, the place seemed twice as dark. The red sign blinked on and off, on and off. Then I saw Kraus. He was standing behind the meat counter at the scale. And he picked up the note, my note. I did it, Kraus, and, and he read it. I couldn't see his eyes, just the glasses. And every time the light blinked, they shone red. Bright red, like some sort of terrible toy. And they began to move. And it was like a movie that you see one frame at a time. Each time the light blinked on, he wasn't where he'd been before, but closer. Closer. Kraus? 
Mr. Krauss? Mr. Krauss! The red glasses kept coming at me. I edged over toward the vegetables, and he moved to... I moved the other way toward the groceries. There was a railing. I climbed over. I was in one of the long, narrow aisles of cans and bottles. The stuff was piled head high. I waited. Hoping maybe he didn't see me. But he did. I hid behind a stack of canned dog food. He sounded 30 or 40 feet away. I waited. I looked around the corner. He was looking down another aisle. I ducked my head back. Couldn't understand that sound. I looked again. The aisle was empty, but in the center where Krauss had stood were his shoes. He'd taken them off. Very quietly, I bent and took mine off. And I began to tiptoe away from where I'd seen him. And then I rounded the corner. There he was, not two feet away with his back to me. And I lost my balance. I put my hand out to steady me. A whole stack of cans went over. I ran. I kept running, and there I was. I was at the end of an aisle, and there was the wall, the back wall. And I turned, and he was coming, coming straight at me. My hand put something cold, a bottle. I grabbed it. It was ammonia. Krauss, get back. Get back, Krauss, or I'll blind you. Krauss, I warn you. I swear I will. He stood there like a crazy giant, like Cyclops tearing at his eyes, the ammonia running down his face. I didn't wait. I ran past him, bumping him aside, ran and ran and cut around the cash register, past delicatessen in the bakery to the door. It was locked. The key. I'd left it in the lock. It was gone. I tried to break the glass with my fist, but it was like steel. Well, I couldn't kick it. I'd left my shoes behind. And Krauss kept coming, feeling his way along, moaning. In the blinking light, I could see he still had the knife in his hand. I slid behind the counter of the meat department. Oh, under my feet, the sawdust. I bent, scooped up a handful. His face was awful, twisted and gleaming. His glasses were gone and his eyes were screwed tight shut in pain. He stopped ten feet away, swaying. Then he opened his eyes, opened them as wide as he could and moved his head from side to side, trying nearsightedly to see me. Then his head stopped moving and holding it sideways, using one eye to see me, he came on, the knife held way back. I waited. And I let fly with the sawdust and jumped to one side, my back up against the block, and he twisted and skidded in the sawdust and he fell. He was very still for a moment. I waited. He rose to his knees. In the blinking light, I saw the knife. He'd fallen on it. It stuck out of the middle of his chest. Krauss! slowly. He got to his feet, one hand over the place where the knife was, and started toward me again. There was a rack over the chopping block. He reached up and got a cleaver. I backed up. Behind me, I felt a large, cold handle. The door to the meat storage room, I heaved it open. Inside, it was cold, bitter cold, and dark. In the center of the door was one small, thick pane of glass. 
It was cloudy. I wiped it clear with my hand and looked out. Krauss stood there, his face an inch from mine, looking in. And then his eyes rolled back and his face went slack and he fell out of sight. He was dead. I was sure of it. I felt around in the dark for the knob, but I couldn't find it. I felt the door from top to bottom. There were bars and bolts and something that felt like a handle. I yanked and tugged, but it wouldn't move. There was a knife on a slab there, a butcher knife. I felt around the door for a crack, slipped the knife in and, and twisted. Broke off. Another door, I thought. Maybe there's... Oh, please. Another door out of this place. I began to search for it in the dark, feeling along the icy, damp walls. I walked into something cold that moved when I touched it. Oh, the side of beef. But no door. I moved farther. Another icy, cold thing. And I moved on and came up against another... As cold as the rest, but... And I'm crazy. I know it. I'm crazy. This one... This one feels as though it's wearing silk stockings. <laughs> so here I am. It's awfully cold. Cold as a witch's heart. Cold as a tomb. This thing I have in my hand, this knife handle. I wish it had a blade. I know what I do, I know, but it hasn't. Anyway, well, I'm innocent of anything. They'll believe me. They will. There's a letter outside on the scale. It says, I did it, Krauss. Don't blame anybody else. And there's my suitcase. Well, that'll prove I meant to go away and not cause anybody a hard time. And there's... Oh, oh time goes slow. And while I'm waiting and waiting and waiting, I'll tell myself the whole story again and again. It'll give me something to do, you know something to think about. You see, it started the first day of the job. I was clerking the liquor department at the supermarket. I hadn't been in Los Angeles a week. My brother, when I left New York, had given me this letter to a friend of his. You know, a guy who owned a string of these supermarkets. The letter was about could he use me. I was a good fellow. He counted a favor, you know. The guy had this opening a liquor clerk. It was the first day and I'd come to Los Angeles. I'd been there a short time. If you enjoyed that golden age of radio production, be sure to follow the Riley and Kimmy show. We feature old time radio shows from time to time. We have archived episodes available right now on our website at RileyandKimmy.com. Some of them have old time radio episodes on them. Please tell your friends about the Riley and Kimmy show. Help us grow. Our social media links are available on our website at RileyandKimmy.com. That's R-I-L-E-Y. And Kimmy, K-I-M-M-Y, dot com. If you friend, follow, and like us, we will friend and follow you back. Also, be sure to check out our website, events page, and our social media pages for updates where the Riley and Kimmy show will be appearing next. And we're available for your pop culture event and also those that are animal-based, about pets and animals, too. We have a spinoff show called Animal Special. So be sure to tell your friends about us. It's the Riley and Kimmy Show, the nerd variety talk show 
with daily pop culture episodes. The Riley and Kimmy Show. Find archive podcasts of The Riley and Kimmy Show at RileyandKimmy.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.